Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Kate Moore joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. She's BlackRock's chief equity strategist. Let's start with the Fed. We're looking ahead to this meeting uh, next week. Give us a sense here of, of just sort of how the market is preparing for what seems like a likely increase in rates next week. I have to say that the signals we got from Yellen last week were, were pretty encouraging from our perspective. We had very much, many of the investors at BlackRock were in this camp, that the Fed should be moving and uh, that if they didn't move, it would actually signal something, I think, um, perhaps not too positive. I'm going to be careful about the way I say that. But, you know, that they were paralyzed, frankly, instead of being able to really react to the data and what we think is pretty strong momentum on the macro. And I think that strong momentum on the macro and uh, and kind of the broad-based strong data is reflected, I think, in, you know, equity market performance recently. So, look, it, 25 basis points out of March doesn't really mean a lot for equity markets. It's something Tom and I were talking about a little while ago. It certainly shouldn't affect the interest expense for most U.S. companies. It's really a question of, you know, what does the Fed signal at the March meeting? Is there a change in their tone about the pace? And, you know, what are the implications then for the yield curve, which I think if we get a little bit of steepening after um, what we've seen in the, st- the first part of this year would be a, a nice boost, another tailwind to financials, uh, which I'd really like to see lead the market in 2017. Talk about change in tone. I mean, we talked with Michael Farola, we talked with uh, Steve Rusciuto yesterday from Mizzou, just about what we saw last week, got their reaction to the, the, the pivot uh, that we saw from Fed policymakers last week. As a strategist, what did you make of, of uh, what they had to say, the quantity of speeches and um, how quickly many of them seemed to turn? Little Brainerd comes to mind chiefly. Yeah, look, there are people who are much um, more in the know when, yeah. it com- when it comes to... Uh, reading those leaves. Uh, yeah, reading those tea leaves <laughs> and, and being able to analyze the, the, the change in tone. But I, what I can say from my colleagues at BlackRock who who have worked at the Fed and and who are um, what I would put in that camp of in the know, you know, they remarked, frankly, that this really was a pivot, particularly from the chair, towards a more kind of committee-based leadership as opposed to just, you know, here are my views. And I think this is really kind of signaling what the Fed might look like uh, as we get into the transition phase over the next couple years, 2017 to 18. I mentioned the VIX uh, here in that 11 range. Uh, mm. We see all of that complacency, complacency continuing. What do, you, what do you make of that? The fact that it's continued to sort of, I don't know if hover is the right word, if it's down that, that low, but uh, that it stayed where it is. It's a great question around uh, volatility, because this was a, a discussion we had earlier this week. Someone said to me, hey, look, realized vol, not just the VIX, you know, is at exceptionally low levels? Mm. You know, is, the, is everyone just complacent? But I want to remind everyone, in, in August, when everyone was paralyzed and concerned about the U.S. election and there was so much uncertainty, realized fall and the VIX were both at exceptionally low, low, right. low levels. So um, I would I would classify that period as not complacent. 
And I think it's hard to say that these measures of volatility right now are indicating complacency. Yeah, that's right. You see how David Gurr stole my question there? Mm-hmm. That's oh, right sorry. where I wanted to go. Is, <laughs> uh, Good morning, everyone. Kate Moore with us from BlackRock. Uh, Kate, the, the, the VIX average is 1920 over 2030 uh, years. A 40 VIX means a lot of angst. Market's going uh, to you know what. Um, a VIX of 12, 11, 10, and a few prints of nine means great complacency. Is there much difference, do you interpret, between an 11 and a 12 or 11 and a 10 VIX? Is there a lot of information gleaned there? People are dying to be able to interpret a one-point you know, point move. To a tenth and, of a point. Yeah, it's, it's something incredibly important. But I know I, I can't really figure Thank out you. what it means. And what I would also say is I don't know that these low levels of volatility are actually complacency. For me, it feels more like paralysis. This is like great confusion with what to do in the market. You know, people want to participate without really increasing their active bets. They want to make sure that they're not missing out but are scared of really swinging for the fences when there's still so much political and policy uncertainty. Does, does scare help equity investors? My, you know, you climb the wall of worry is, it's a, it's a good cliche, frankly. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know how it's, it's been good for equity investors recently. You know, uh, the fact that there hasn't been a strong, powerful consensus to put all risk yeah. on, where there has been a more balanced debate about whether or not equities are overpriced or whether or not the move is sustainable or how much of it is due to Trump versus Fed versus growth versus fundamentals. And the, there's lots of discussion around what is motivating or not the market. That actually is quite healthy. When everyone's in the same camp, I get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know that uh, you like healthcare. Just reading the notes, it seems like you like healthcare. I was I was looking yesterday uh, after we had the announcement of this new plan from Paul Ryan and his colleagues, Republicans in the House. Um, we had a tweet from the president about uh, drug costs, and we saw healthcare stocks go down. Is politics still the chief driver here? Uh, we were talking about the the central bank. It seemed like for a couple of days here that it was coming to the fore again as as a principal driver of of, of the markets, um, and then it seems like it was turned on its head again over these last couple of days. Yeah, politics, I think, has the ability to, to cause pockets in the market, um, you know, upside kind of air pockets and then also deflationary pockets yeah. as well. But I don't think on a kind of a – if you think about this on a moving average, whether it's a four-week moving average or even a three-month moving average, that politics alone can drive the markets. You know, one of my big arguments was that the the, the uh, market run we saw in the fourth quarter was not really just about Trump. Some of it was uh, about expectations around uh, – you know, less stringent or right-sizing of the regulatory environment. But a lot of it also had to do with really starting to price in the good news on on macro and the the solid story on earnings and um, actually really acknowledging that, you know, that the U.S. economy and U.S. companies were in good shape. And so it it was just politics can cause people to stop participating in the market. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that it's going to be enough to really derail the whole equity market at this point. Well, here we are a few weeks into this uh, this new administration. I wonder attitudinally what Wall Street's <laughs> relationship to, to Washington is at this point. Is there curiosity about what's happened? Is there a disregard for what's happening because not a lot of substance has happened uh, yet? Just <laughs> what do you uh, on Wall Street make of, of what's happening in Washington, D.C.? Are we getting any better at, at understanding what's happening in Washington? I think the big question that most of our investors have is, 
what is the timing of changes in policy? Because we know we have to get through confirmation hearings. We know that the Affordable Care Act uh, replacement is is very top on the priority. But then tax policy and infrastructure policy and other parts of fiscal policy are a big question mark. And there's been a real challenge, I think, for investors to, to really uh, – you know, stick to a timeline or, you know, be able to invest based on that timeline and price that into equities, into earnings. So from that perspective, I would say, um, you know, we're paying very close attention to what's happening in D.C., but it's it's difficult to to really reflect that in your positions. That's so interesting. You know, Tom, I was talking mm-hmm. to somebody who was a former chief of staff to, to Max Baucus yesterday, and you get the sense that um, while they have a, an idea of how this is supposed to go, this time is somehow different, that you're looking at a timetable for tax reform, you're looking at a time for regulatory reform, and, and it's hard to say that it's going to proceed apace in the way that it has in the yeah, past. But, but your world, I mean, I get the idea of politics, that the president puts out yeah. a tweet, stocks move. Your adult world of a three-year time frame is removed from politics. It's about GDP. Yeah. It's about creating revenues, creating cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. Can you stay a bull looking at flat growth rates or even added and higher growth rates of free cash flow? I think we can be bullish over the next few years uh, as long as businesses are not derailed. It feels like this administration and D.C. in general, the the entire um, sort of Republican Party, feels very strongly about stepping away from involvement in multiple different industries and that if we can unleash a little bit of the our favorite phrase uh animal spirits <laughs> if if we can make that happen um then whatever is happening in, in in dc may not be as consequential so this is a i mean tom you're asking a great question but from my perspective uh companies are just waiting for the green yeah. light and they're starting to get a flicker of that right no. now kate Moore with us with blackrock what an underperformance all in all by international stocks in this great bull market. And then, and my experience is they make it all back in one year. Is that what we're going to see here is outperformance of large cap foreign stocks and frankly, EM stocks as well? Yeah. So let me separate out the non-US developed markets as from emerging markets because I think we're on Agreed. Two, Agreed. Two, two different paths Agreed. here. Um, we're actually constructive on both groups. And I, technically have a neutral rating on U.S. equities, uh, in large part because of valuation and, frankly, positioning, both of which are signaling to us um, that the market is very well owned and the upside may be more constrained. But so when we think about non-U.S. developed markets, I mean, here's an interesting bit. You know, we both we have benefits from both currency as well as kind of the cyclical upswing. And we're seeing an you know, upgrades to earnings in Europe and Japan in, in a way that we haven't seen for multiple different years. Neither feels exceptionally well-owned. Um, and multiples are not demanding for either European or Japanese equity. So there's kind of a lot of boxes that get ticked. But I will note these are not necessarily long-term structural trades for us. Structural investments. This is more of like a you know shorter term call. So I think Tom, your point here about you know do we get a a snap in a a year's time or over the period of a couple quarters? um, Question. I think that's that's pretty relevant. When it comes to emerging markets, though, this is a critical point for us. We upgraded emerging markets last summer. on, on a variety of different bases. You know, emerging markets have already gone through what was a very difficult period for earnings. There's been significant improvement, particularly for some, and I'm thinking about this in China, for some of the state-controlled companies in terms of their margins, um, you know, 
much more disciplined CapEx, actually really significant uh, earnings momentum, valuations not demanding, and it is an asset class that is just largely ignored. The underperformance over the last few years has left um, you know, it, it out of most people's portfolios. So the solid global macro picture, plus all this fundamental improvement and, and impressive, or pardon me, like a, a not extended valuations and uh, very little ownership kind of all ticks the boxes mm-hmm. for EM. I've been uh, paying attention to China this week as we have this National People's Congress going on, and you have this great note about investing uh, in China. And I just think that there's such a hurdle to doing that just because people don't know how to get into that market. You sort of outline the ways in which people do. And I thought what was most fascinating is the way that uh, you look at – BlackRock looks at, at big data here. And that's not just information on the companies per se, but satellite data and cell phone chat, all this stuff. Right. How, how hard is it to invest in China at this point? And, and you're, you're optimistic about it. You, you say if, if you can figure out the way in, it's, it's worth doing. Yeah, so we have both fundamental kind of scientific ways to analyze Chinese equities. The fundamental stuff is, it seems more traditional, but actually you get um, great, great alpha from really understanding policy and the implications and the timeline right. for, for some of the supply, supply side reforms and which companies are, are really performing. But you're right. The big data stuff is, is exceptionally interesting. Looking at credit card data, uh, looking at keyword searches and topics in you know chat rooms, finding out where the money is actually flowing and really being able to track consumer behavior, you know, it can really help you – discern the winners and the losers and be positioned for that once the earnings actually come through. So, Where, where's the opportunity therein? Is it in new industries? Is it in the, the, the old stuff, manufacturing, uh, what we associate with sort of the, the traditional old industries of, of China? Or are you looking at, at newer stuff, at IT, at, at uh well, this is what's so cool about investing in China and the reason why we wrote this piece yeah. is that the opportunities are both in a kind of old old economy as well as new economy parts of the market. It's not just tech and, and healthcare and parts of the consumer, but it's also some of the you know more cyclical sectors and the heavy industry and manufacturing and industrials that are going through big reforms, as I was mentioning, cutting capex and really improving their margins, where there's a, a decent amount of upside. So um, this is kind of the first time in, in multiple years we can say that, where the <coughs> breadth of opportunity well, is quite large. Thank you. For being Great to see you. and giving us perspective through this unloved bull market, is it still an unloved bull market? It's it's hard to it's hard to tell how <laughs> unloved it is. Um, but my general feeling is there's a lot more room for people to put on equity risk, especially yeah. considering the amount of flows we see into bond funds. Even in 2017, yeah. uh, there's a lot of room for just modest reallocation. And I would say specifically for institutional investors and pension funds. They're all behind. I mean, they're all in a panic on an on a alpha basis. That hasn't happened, has it? Well, there's a lot of talk about, like, I want to mitigate the risk in my portfolio. And the easiest yeah. way they, they think about doing that is reducing equity exposure. Yeah. But, but you and I both know, or all three of us know, that um, equities are not the only risk asset class. That, that kind of anything you're investing right now well, has some degree risk, particularly if we continue to normalize rates. Kate Moore, thank you so much with uh, BlackRock. Tom, as I said, we're awaiting here an interview. Uh, our David West, our colleague David West yeah. in Washington, D.C., scheduled to talk to the Commerce Secretary. The Commerce Secretary, I believe he's the 38th Commerce Secretary, and it's usually... It's a business position. It's somebody, Ms. Pritzker, was a commerce secretary for 
President Obama and there have been others. He's a little different. He's a very successful gentleman from New Jersey, went to Xavier uh, in uh, New York City, and then, of course, on to Yale, where he's been a substantial philanthropist. But what's great, if you look at his Wikipedia, David, there's a single sentence. <laughs> he's a Democrat. Yes, long, long-time Democrat. Yeah, and it's a very interesting position for Mr. Ross to assist uh, the president with um, the different twists and turns of what will be uh, a Trump business stance. And I think that's a little, would you agree, David? It's a little un, little unclear right now. Unclear. And he's been on the job just over a week here, uh, again, uh, taking up that mantle as Secretary of Commerce for President Donald Trump. Let's go back to yesterday. Uh, right. Way back at yesterday, you announced a very big arrangement with a Chinese company, uh, almost a billion dollar fine, actually, right. for violating sanctions with Iran. Explain to us that uh, transaction and how that fits in a Chinese trade policy, or does it at all? Is it just a one-off? Well, people don't realize it, but Commerce Department has many, many divisions, one of which is the Bureau of Industrial Security, and I'm wearing their little lapel pin now in honor of what they did yesterday. The job of that group is to make sure that sensitive materials, particularly highly technological materials, don't get into the wrong hands. ZTE had the exact opposite game plan. They were dealing repeatedly with Iran, repeatedly with North Korea, and despite the sanctions in both cases. So this is a case been going on for quite a few years. And I'm very proud that the department only has 20 agents in that particular segment. And this is not the only case. You're going to see more cases because there have been other violators of the sanctions. And you and the president are pretty, pretty outspoken about our relations with China when it comes to trade. Is there a special particular focus of commerce on these sorts of possible violations for Chinese companies? Well, for any companies, we're not discriminating against the Chinese. Anybody who violates the sanctions, we will deal with harshly. Uh, So let's turn now to Mexico and NAFTA, another uh, very big item on the agenda. Uh, It's been clear, the president's made it very clear, he wants to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, As you go into those negotiations, there's also this proposal for a border adjustment tax up on the Hill. Unclear what the White House's position is. As I understand, unclear what your position is. Uh, how do you make assumptions about a border adjustment tax as you negotiate with Mexico? Do you assume there will be one, there won't be one, or do you wait? Well, the kinds of things we have to deal with in the Mexican and Canadian negotiations are really not related to the border adjustable tax. The genesis of the border adjustable tax is as much the need for revenue as part of the new tax bill as it is anything else. It's not intended principally as a trade activity. It will obviously have an impact on trade, but that's not its main origin. So the Mexican situation is is the following. It's an old treaty. Our economy is very different from what it was when that treaty was entered into. You didn't have the whole digital economy. Services were not nearly as important as they are now. And further, We've now had decades of experience with the treaty. Very hard to get a several thousand page document right at inception. And there were some things in it that were missed. There were some things in it that were not done correctly to begin with. And a lot of things that might have been okay back then, but don't work now. 
So there's a lot to fix. And both the Canadian government and the Mexican government have said things like that. They say it has an old treaty. There's room for negotiation. There are gives and takes we can have. That's one model. Another model is we have a substantial trade deficit with Mexico that we have to fix. Which one is driving the Department of Commerce? Both. <laughs> so are you really targeting the trade deficit? Because as you look at trade deficit, it actually has not risen with Mexico over the course of NAFTA. The imports and the exports have both increased, but the overall trade deficit hasn't changed much. Well, but that's, why are that's we targeting really that? not true. Pre-NAFTA, we regularly had a trade surplus with Mexico. Now we regularly have a substantial trade deficit with Mexico. So it's, it's not true that pre-NAFTA and post-NAFTA, there's no change, there's a big change. So one of your goals is to reduce, if not eliminate, that trade deficit with Mexico. A absolutely. We think there's no logical reason why one country, namely the U.S., needs to have a trade deficit that roughly equals the combined trade surplus of the rest of the world. It's not our fate in life that we have to absorb all the net exports from everyone else. In order to get those sorts of concessions out of Mexico, uh, there will have to be some uh, uh, threats, I don't think it's too strong a word, made, about tariffs, whether it's border adjustment tax or something else. Uh, could that really disrupt trade overall with Mexico? What does it mean for, for example, a General Motors? Well, first of all, I'm not a very threatening figure. <laughs> so I don't know about the word threat, but the reality is the Mexicans know, the Canadians know, everybody knows times of different we are going to have new trade relations with people, and they all know they're going to have to make concessions. The only question is, what's the magnitude and what's the form of the concessions? I've told the president repeatedly, he's made my job a lot easier by softening up the adverse parties. What could be better than going into a negotiation where the fellow on the other side knows he has to make concessions? What is the time horizon now? When would you expect the negotiations to begin, and how quickly would you like to get them resolved? Well, I'd like to get the results tomorrow, but that's not the way <laughs> that the world works. We're, we're now in the early stages of the TPA process, the Trade Promotion Authority, the so-called fast track. And that process, by its own nature, has a couple of months starting point before anything very serious happens. So. You're talking the, probably the latter part of this year before real negotiations get underway. So you know from your, your prior role, as, as I said, a very successful investor, business really doesn't like uncertainty. Uh, when they make investment decisions, they like to know what's happening. Right. There's a lot of urgency on the part of American business and financial markets, for that matter, to get this thing resolved and know what we're dealing with. Well, they, they don't have any more sense of urgency than I do, and you're well aware the president has a well-documented sense of urgency as well. We're here with U.S. Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross, and we want to welcome once again our Bloomberg Radio audience as well as TV. So we're going to get this done as quickly as we can. Do you have a sense at this point of what the major sticking points are likely to be? Do you have targets, for example, rules of origin, environmental restrictions? There have been a list of things that people have suggested should be taken a look at. Well, there were roughly 20 chapters to the original NAFTA. And there are several chapters that need to be added because of the digital economy and other things that have developed subsequently. So there are myriad points of discussion that will come. Which ones will bear the most fruit is a little bit premature to discuss, but there's a lot of meat 
to be dealt with. As you go into these negotiations, how mindful are you of the possibility of what the markets talk about as a trade war? where uh, sanctions would be taken that might escalate, go to WTO, there would be reciprocal sanctions, things like that. How mindful are you of that danger? Well, we're in a trade war. We've been in a trade war for decades. That's why we have a deficit. The difference is our troops are now coming to the ramparts. That's the only change. But, but it sounds like it's going to be a shooting war now. No, it's not going to be a shooting war. If people know you have the big bazooka, you probably don't have to use it. So you are reasonably confident we'll come up with a revised NAFTA that will substantially reduce trade deficit with Mexico within the year? Well, I think the negotiations hopefully won't take more than a year. How long it will take to implement them and to get the reductions, that's a different question. These are very complicated issues. For example, you mentioned rules of origin, and that certainly will be a big topic. But... You have to be mindful also of the supply chains that have developed and to the degree that a transition, geographic transition is needed, that takes some time. Well, you mentioned uh, the supply chains, which is very much on the minds of a lot of U.S. business, as you know. Sure. I mean, I'll pick on Mary Barra just because she has spoken out about this. And GM has a particularly complicated situation with shipping parts back and forth across the border. Right. Um, to what extent are you hearing from U.S. business? And are they playing a constructive role in saying this is how you could accomplish your goals, but consistent with what we need to do as a business? Well, they're all nervous because, as you mentioned, uncertainty is, is the big curse of any business. But frankly, it's a big curse of government, too. Mm. Government doesn't like uncertainty any more than business leaders do. So we will try to get it resolved as rapidly as we can. And we will be consulting with the industries that could be affected. Part of this whole TPA process is consultation with the domestic industry, both getting recommendations from them as to changes they would like and hearing through the problems, the issues that some of the changes might create for them. We tend to focus on Mexico, but of course NAFTA is a trilateral yes, agreement. Uh, do you anticipate the, the negotiations will be three-part negotiations with people you know, bartering across borders? Well, the president has indicated his general preference for bilateral, mm -hmm. but we're open-minded about the form in which the NAFTA discussions will take. The most important thing is the end result, not whether it's a bilateral or a trilateral arrangement. I want to come back to border adjustment tax. Uh, have you taken a position? Do you have a view about the border adjustment tax? Yes, my view is that I'm studying it very carefully <laughs> as it evolves. And as we get to understand more the intricate details of it and how it interacts with everything else, that's when we'll take a position. And you suggested, uh, as I understand it, quite correctly, that Speaker Ryan has put this forward as a way, in principle part, of saving a lot of money for tax reform, basically. But it does have trade ramifications. It will affect trade flows that you must be analyzing. Oh, absolutely. It, anything that affects what goes across the border clearly has a trade implication. But it is meant to be part of an overall tax package. And so you have several issues. One is the question whether or not to do a border adjustable. Second is what magnitude of it is needed. And then third are the intricate details. How does it really work? If you're a solely domestic producer who does some exporting, 
that's one set of facts. If you're mainly an importer, a different one. If you're both, even more complicated. So it isn't a very simple thing to analyze. And because it's so important in such large numbers, as you know, they're talking about potentially a trillion dollars over a 10-year period. That's way too big a number to get wrong. I want to turn now briefly to Germany because uh, Chancellor Merkel will be visiting Washington next week. There's been some discussion, not from you that I'm aware of, but some discussion from the administration about trade with Germany, where there is, again, a trade deficit. Uh, Will that be on the agenda for discussions with Angela Merkel? My, My guess is that those discussions will be somewhat higher level than uh, getting precisely into how many automobiles from Germany get sold here. I'd be very surprised if you got to that level of granularity uh, in the discussions. Um, It's also complicated in that Germany is not a separate entity. Uh, Trade relations with the outside world fundamentally come through the EU, so it's a little more complicated structurally dealing anything with Germany than with, say, Mexico or Canada. And this is a point that Peter Navarro, who has a role on trade at the White House, made when uh, recently he actually criticized Germany, saying they were getting an advantage in trade because they're part of the euro, which is artificially low, or if it were a Deutschmark again, it would be high. Is that part of trade policy for the U.S. government? Well, currency is a factor in trade, clearly. And, for example, with Mexico, The weakness of the peso has been a significant factor in trade. Peso is way down versus the dollar just this year, let alone prior years. So, sure, that affects the relative competitiveness of countries. But is it U.S. policy at this point that the euro is too weak against the dollar? The currency matters are mostly dealt with by Treasury, not by commerce. And my plate's pretty full (laughs) with what is on it. So I'm not going to go poaching food from other people's plate. Finally, Mr. Secretary, does it strike you as ironic? You mentioned the peso being down this year. If you tracked how candidate Trump did in the polls, it had a direct relationship with the peso. A lot of the peso devaluation appears to be in response to President Trump getting elected. Is it ironic that the more successful he is, the more it drives down the peso and exacerbates the problem of the trade deficit? Well, that's a complicated equation. Uh, I think what it does show is that markets tend to adjust to realities. And as the probability of the Trump presidency grew, clearly it had some implications for Mexico and others. Uh, And now that the Trump presidency is a reality, it has even more clear implications. Wilbur Ross, uh, the Secretary of Commerce with our David Weston. David Gura, most interesting there uh, to hear the different themes. In I, I like what he said at the end about complexity and that a lot of these issues, instead of being one idea or a second idea, have a lot of complexity to them. Yeah, and he's still finding his way again. He's been on the job for just eight days now. I thought his answer to that question yeah. about uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel's visit to Washington was interesting. He said he had a a full plate, and he doubts that they'll be dealing with many of these issues in a, in a granular sense, uh, but interesting to yeah. hear as he begins uh, his job there in the Commerce Department. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, 
Incorporated member SIPC. Lindsay Piegza is on the line. She's the chief economist at Stiefel. Uh, Nicholas joins us now, and I want to read a, a line from one of her most recent notes. She says the Fed here is going to pull the rug out from under the market's certain expectation of a third-rate hike come the 15th. She's in a, a small elite club here that uh, also includes Stephen Rizzuto, who we spoke to yesterday from, from Mizuho, those who are not expecting the Fed to raise rates next week, despite all that we heard uh, from Fed governors, Fed policymakers uh, last week. Lindsay, good to talk to you, uh, as always. What did you hear uh, last week that so many of your colleagues did not? Well, I think the Fed really set the stage for a near-term rate increase. They wanted to give themselves enough room that if the data came in extremely strong over the coming uh, days and weeks, they would be able to pull the trigger. But at the same time, I think really focusing on Yellen's commentary was the key uh, for the last couple of weeks. She said, look, there's no rush. We're not behind the curve. And while she did warn about the risks of waiting too long, she also said that there, there really was no sense of immediacy at this point. A lot of Fed officials are not overly concerned about inflation running out of control, nor are they overly impressed with the current pace of the recovery. And so there still is this veil of uncertainty coming from certainly fiscal policy in the U.S., as well as anticipated volatility from geopolitical risks abroad uh, with the upcoming slew of uh, international elections. So really right now there's, there's no sense of pressure on the Fed to act sooner than later, but all of this commentary has really set the market up to anticipate a rate hike any time the Fed does decide that it's appropriate to pull the trigger. So what do you make then of what Stan Fisher, the Fed Reserve Vice Chair, had to say on the same day as, as Janet Yellen, the Fed Chair, uh, last week? Basically that we've had three months here of, of not one really bad piece of, of data. Maybe that's a, a big enough motivating factor in the month itself. Well, I think that's that's really what the market's been focusing on. We haven't had any great news, but we also haven't had any further bad news. And for the Fed, I think they're really focused on the latter, saying, okay, this may be as good as it gets. We haven't seen another shoe drop. And as long as we don't see any fear to the downside, uh, maybe we're not going to see any pickup to the upside, but this may be the only window of opportunity. But that being mm-hmm. said, we really don't want the Fed to be looking at the data from that standpoint. We want to make sure sure that policymakers are making the decision to move forward with rate increases based on the underlying strength yeah. of the economy, not the lack of further weakness in the economy. Dr. Piazza, help me here with the market economics of where these rates really matter. I think everybody's sort of doing a parlor game on March 15th because mm. nobody cares about March 15th. When <laughs> does it click in where higher rates impinge on the financial system and impinge on GDP growth? Well, everyone's focused on the idea of getting back to a new normal. Where is it? Well, we don't know. We don't know where the new normal is. Now, historically, we're talking about getting the fund, uh, the Fed funds rate back over 4%, but even Fed officials themselves say the longer-run rate on the Fed funds level is likely to be below 3%. And, and furthermore, we talk about 25 basis points. Yeah, that may not matter on the short end, but interest rate-sensitive sectors are already going to feel the pinch. We're talking about consumer credit. We're talking about housing. Uh, when we look at potential first-time home buyers, an additional increase in rates, be that 10 basis points, 
20 basis points. That's going to make it increasingly more difficult from an affordability standpoint. Now, we have seen the housing market kind of teeter, uh, really no significant upward momentum over the past 12 to 18 months. And again, for the young 20-somethings, the young 30-somethings that are born and used to very low rates, even a slow creep up in the cost of financing a home will deter them and keep them in the rental market. So the economy certainly will feel the impact with even marginal, small increases in uh, Fed policy. What's your sense of what we're going to hear from from the Labor Department this week as we look at that panoply of economic data? Uh, Obviously, the Fed is going to care what comes out of the Labor Department on, on, on Friday. What are you looking for? Absolutely. This is, a, this is a key report, which could really make or break the Fed's decision, which, again, goes back to the idea that the Fed should not be basing monetary policy on one data point. But we'll put that argument aside. Mm. And really, what we've seen in the labor market has been disappointing as of late, at least in my opinion. We saw on average about 250,000 jobs added uh, per month in 2014. That's low to 230. That's low to 180 in 2016. So we're still putting Americans back to work, but at a much slower pace. Now, January's monthly employment report bucked the trend. We saw a nice 227,000 increase, and the market seems to be thinking that that one data point was an initiation of a much stronger upward trend. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that we are on this new path, but I I don't necessarily expect a continuation Mm -hmm. of above 200,000. But for the Fed, they're going to be watching wages and that overall wage growth number. And now it's 7.5502 Wall Street time. We begin our jobs coverage for Friday. And folks, we'll have our complete jobs day on Friday. We'll go beneath the headline data, but we start with Lindsay Piegza right now. Lindsay, help me here with what you just mentioned, which is wage growth. Um, Vice Chairman Fisher suggests it's important, and Hyman over at ISI Evercourse says it's, quote unquote, the referee. What's it actually going to be? Define right now the wage growth that Chair Yellen needs to say all clear for a measured rate rise. Mm. Well, what we want to see is an upward trajectory. So as you know, last year we started to see wages creep higher. We peaked up around 2829%. That was revised down to 2.5. So that directional change really gave the Fed pause to say, wait a minute, are wages on a broader base beginning to improve, or did we see really sectoral pressure where specific skills were in high demand and low supply? Areas like IT, craft labor, engineering, accounting, this was really accounting for that vast majority of the run-up last year. So the Fed's going to be watching this and saying 2.5% isn't bad, but where do we go from here? Does it drop down to 2.4, 2.3 in the February. Okay, but, but help me. I get a ton of mail on this. What's normal wage growth nominally or even on a real wage basis? We're nowhere near real wage growth in this country, are we? Oh, no, absolutely. We've been trending at 2.1% since the end of the Great Recession. We should easily easily be talking about above 3%. And we haven't been there, and there's really no indication that we're going to get back there. So looking at wage growth, it does suggest that there's still an ample amount of slack in the labor market. Now, whether or not you believe we're at full employment at 4.8% unemployment, looking at wages, it's very clear that there is a significant amount of underemployment out in the economy. And for the Fed, it's not about that top-line non-farm payroll number. It's about whether or not we're seeing wage growth, because that's going to be indicative of whether or not the labor market is beginning to overheat and the Fed needs to respond appropriately with tighter monetary policy. Help me with investment. Are there any signs on the horizon? One theory here, Lindsay, is that investment may be going abroad. 
Well, investment has been really the missing key to the recovery. As we've seen looking at uh, an index I like to follow, durable goods orders excluding aircraft and defense. This is a proxy that we use for business investment in that overall growth component. And, and what we see is that this has really trended negative at zero or negative for the past 23 consecutive months. So it's very clear that when we look out to the future, if businesses are not developing, innovating, investing, we really can't expect for the U.S. economy to expand above and beyond this two-ish percent pace. Now, we did see a bump up at the start of the year, and that's very encouraging. But as we know, one data point does not make a trend, and it may be that this is a temporary bump based on optimism of the Trump administration booing in uh, a series of pro-growth policies. So we're going to need to see those policies come to fruition in order to support that type of elevated activity rather than rely on confidence maintaining that uh, that improvement longer term. But absolutely, businesses are right now are awash in cash. They have the capital to put to work, but they're very hesitant still to invest in equipment, structures, and certainly high-wage full-time employees, as we were just talking about. Yeah, we just heard from the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, who was talking with our colleague David Weston in Washington, D.C., and one thing that Secretary Ross said is that uncertainty is a big curse for business. You look at the NFIB survey of small businesses, though, it seems like there is a, a, a new and high sense of, of optimism. So why doesn't that soft data uh, translate to, to, to more certainty, more, more, more CapEx spending? Well, uh, certainly, uh, uncertainty, regulation, health care costs, these are the burdens that businesses have been pointing to for years. And you're right. Uh, usually or, or typically we look at that survey data, and eventually it does translate into a change in behavior. But it's going to take certainty of that optimism. So meaning that that optimism is going to have to have some sort of firm foundation that it is, that it is going to be translated into reality. And right now we're, we're still hearing from the White House, we're still hearing from our, our officials uh, up in D.C. that these policies are going to come down the pipeline, but we really don't have anything firm yet to hang our hats on. So businesses, yes, that we ask them, we survey them, we talk to them, are you ready, are you poised to invest and hire? And typically their answer does translate into a change in behavior, but we need more at this point. Optimism alone is not going to, or I should say temporary optimism alone, is not going to change that behavior. But where is the change of behavior for corporate officers Mm -hmm. other than they're bathing in the great distortion, both nominally and at a real rate position? We've got to get rates back to normality before CFOs act normal, don't we? Well, even if rates are normal, if the regulatory environment, if the fiscal environment is anti-business, there's still no incentive for businesses to invest and grow. They, they want to make sure they know the rules of the game. They want to make sure that the rules of the game are fair. And without that, we're going to see businesses maybe, maybe up their investment a little bit, but predominantly that investment is likely to go to automation, technology, replacing the very jobs that we're talking about saving through some of this more pro-growth legislation. So we have to be careful about the balance there that we're looking for. The president hasn't been shy about saying that uh, Secretary Ross is going to be a point person for trade deals, trade negotiation, and, and raising objectives to the uh, objectives, either objections to the WTO. And we heard from him this morning. He said that several chapters may be added to to NAFTA. He said he's uh, still unclear, uncertain as to whether or not NAFTA is going to remain a trilateral deal. And I found this to be incredibly interesting. Uh, bringing us a dispatch here from the front lines, he says that that we've been in a trade war uh, for decades now. When you look at what this administration is saying about trade and the way that that could affect uh, your forecast for the U.S. economy, so what what are you taking into consideration? 
I, I think he's absolutely right. Uh, this is certainly not a free trade environment. It's more of a managed trade environment. You look at these trade deals, um, be that NAFTA, be that TPP, and these are these are documents that are thousands of pages. To basically say to your trading partner, I'm going to remove all barriers to the free flow of capital and goods, that takes one to three pages, not thousands of pages. And, and so it's very clear that each side is continuing to try to manage the trade relationship to benefit the most from that relationship. But anytime you talk about ramping up those barriers, again, to capital, to labor, to services, to goods, crossing over borders, you're talking about a net loss of overline growth potential for those parties involved. So certainly we don't want to move towards a more isolationist or protectionist mm-hmm. environment. We want to make sure that those borders remain open to continue to grow the underlying economy for everyone involved. Tell me about how net exports uh, filter in to our GDP. Do you take everything and sum it together? Uh, Something that we're seeing in the literature is Xing out exports and just looking at domestic final sales. Which do you look at now? All in? Well, right now the typical number is all in, absolutely. When we report GDP, that includes the export number as well. But, of course, as economists, we go through and we dig through the line items, and we do look uh, at final sales uh, from domestic purchasers. We do look at GDP, less inventory. So we try to get an idea of where the momentum is coming from. But right now, when we talk about typical GDP, the number reported uh, on a quarterly basis, uh, for the readers and listeners out there, yes, absolutely, we do include exports uh, in that top-line number. Along those lines, what did you make of what Peter Navarro had to say this week at the NABE conference uh, in Washington, yeah. D.C.? He talked about the, the role there of expert, exports on GDP and said the, you know, the, the trade deficit is incredibly important here, something that he said a lot of academic economists here the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the Ph.D. from Harvard University saying a lot of academic economists wouldn't, wouldn't agree with him uh, here. How, how important is the trade deficit? How closely do you pay attention to it? Uh, the trade deficit is important, um, and certainly we are a net exporter uh, of, of a number of goods. At the same time, we are a net importer of a tremendous amount of goods. And so that there really isn't a simple way to look at it to say we want to make sure we get the trade deficit down to a certain range. Now, it has come into focus as of late because this seems to be a project that President Trump wants to tackle. But given our position uh, with our global trading partners, it's going to be very difficult to change that tide. And and also the focus has really come down to manufactured goods. The idea that the trade deficit represents a loss of manufacturing production and capacity here in the U.S. But again, it's going to be very difficult to turn that tide and return manufacturing jobs to the U.S. given the significant amount of technological progress and uh, automation that has occurred in this country that has really eroded, as opposed to trade, that has really eroded the reliance on manufacturing jobs since really the late 1970s. Let me ask you lastly here just about uh, energy uh, and the relationship. Uh, when you look at, look at inflation, you look at the role that energy is, is playing there. Uh, it's a real driver. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and energy has been uh, one of the, the saving graces, if you will, for the consumer, yeah. low energy prices. Now, remember, this was supposed to be a very temporary drop in energy prices. But we've seen now nearly two years, uh, more than two years, mm-hmm. of very low energy prices, which has really helped sustain the consumer in the absence of marginal income growth. 
So if we do start to see a reversal in the energy market eating into that, uh, that additional ability for the consumer to spend, well, when we talk about these tax increases, we have to put it in perspective. Is that simply going to offset the loss of the benefit that the consumer has been experiencing as a result of these low energy prices, or will it simply be a one-for-one trade-off, leaving the consumer no better off, still at this very modest uh, consumption pace? So energy is going to play a very key role in not only determining the impact of fiscal mm-hmm. policy, but the longer-term outlook for the U.S. economy. Uh, Dr. Piexa, thank you so much. Lindsay Piexa with Stiefel uh, Nicholas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.